this podcast bill franks chief analytics officer for the international institute for analytics talks about the ingredient of a successful analytics ecosystem so stay tuned so welcome everyone to another episode of future data podcast today we have with us an amazing guest we have bill franks if you are in data or analytics uh, it's very difficult that you don't know bill if you don't know bill i think you should so uh, a brief uh, background so bill uh, is is a chief analytics officer for the international institute of of Analy- for an- analytics where he provides perspective on trends in analytics and big data space helps clients understand how iia can support their effort to Im- improve analytic performance he also serves on the advisory board of multiple university and professional analytics programs he has held a range of executive um, positions in the analytics space in the past including several years as chief analytics officer at teradata bill is the author of the book taming the big data tidal wave um, in the book he applied his two decade of experience working with clients on large scale analytics uh, initiatives to outline what it takes to succeed in today's uh world of big data analytics uh the book made tom peters list of 2014 must read books and also the top 10 most influential translated technology books list from csdn in um in china his focus has always been on to help translate complex analytics into terms that business users can understand and to uh, then help an organization implement the results effi- effectively within their uh, their processes His work has spanned clients in variety of industries for companies ranging in size from Fortune 100 companies to small non-profit organizations. He earned a bachelor's degree uh, in applied science from Virginia Tech and master's in applied statistics from NCSU. With that, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Beautiful. So, I think I will we know uh, we know uh, each other for quite some quite some time from Twitter days. Um uh, it was always fascinating to see your work and how how much sort of you work out to help others understand this convoluted world of data analytics so to help our viewers and and listeners understand if you can walk us through your journey and what brought you to to to, to this level and and your background that would be really really helpful yeah i guess the the interesting thing coming from the time that i started working i'd actually say that uh I was as as much lucky as anything and I always mention that because when I came out of grad school with a statistics degree there were pretty limited opportunities in the business world in fact I recall I'm going to say about half of the graduates from my program would go on to be professors probably close to 30% would go into the pharmaceutical industry doing the old uh, you know clinical trial work another you know the bulk of the rest went into government uh, whether it be census bureau fisheries wildlife and there was only a handful of us that actually went into business so when i first started there was no career path there was no seen, mm-hmm. such thing as senior analytics people there were hardly any analytics people and so i did it just expecting uh potentially to have sort of a behind the scenes uh technical career that's what was available um uh, of course it's evolved so much and i've been lucky enough then to to be at the perfect spot as this has has arisen to uh have but you know the experience uh and ability then to help you know lead some of the early teams that have made all of this uh this transformation happen over the last 10 to 15 years interesting and 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 what brought you to um and and, and tell us about your journey as a as uh, in analytics and working so 
how has been your journey uh, in in the analytics domain as such we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job let's get back to the podcast yeah so i you know i started out at uh at AT&T uh back right after they were broken up so a lot of people may or may not know if you're younger AT&T used to be a monopoly the, mm-hmm. and it was the phone company the only one so i was building some literally the very first churn models ever done uh when AT&T the, the product lines i was assessing was still over 80% 80% market share mm-hmm. um because they had just been broken into the uh the baby bells and now mm-hmm. they've all been you know rolled up in various ways I spent some time then doing uh marketing mix models pricing and assortment optimization in the retail and packaged goods industry uh a number of years as most people of my generation did through direct marketing agencies back mm-hmm. when I initially got into that it was largely still direct mail then it moved on to email and of course since has blossomed into uh, uh all the e-marketing activities as well and digital uh, and then um as you mentioned I spent time then uh at Teradata largely because what I had found when I was the guy building all the models and trying to implement these things in the early 2000s was the frustration of the lack of scalability and the mm. uh the common nature where we'd find some amazing results mathematically statistically that we knew would have a big impact on the business and we couldn't actually deploy it so you know people talk today about some of the difficulties deploying and 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 the barriers from a political perspective or organizational etc back then there were true technical barriers it was very very difficult to actually deploy these so i went to teradata to try and explore that intersection of how do you do scale and analytics together and you know had a had a good run there and and in my final years there i wrote those couple of books uh you know the newest one being the elix revolution started doing a lot of blogging a lot of public speaking decided i really enjoyed that aspect uh probably substantially more than having the big team and worrying about all the you know the HR phone calls uh late at night or legal contract issues etc so I came to international to for analytics about a year ago now to focus more on on those parts I like which is going out talking to customers about what's happening in analytics what they might be doing you know I I do my monthly blog writing you know writing the research briefs for IA so it's been it's been fun interesting and and um tell us about like from your vantage point what is the state of analytics that you are seeing now like are, how has it evolved uh, uh, from your vantage point if you can walk us through that yeah so the good news there's always room for improvement but mm. i don't think there's ever been a better time to be in analytics so you go back even a decade there were still some fairly large companies that would question whether they needed to invest in analytics whether they even needed an analytics team at all uh maybe they'd have a few pockets here and there but there was no strategy no meaningful purposeful investment it just you know the marketing people said to me my goal is i need this team of five people cranking out these models for me and no one stopped them that's far different from a mandate that you will use analytics you must build that team and it has to be core part of your strategy so today at least uh the majority of the large clients i work with fully get that analytics is important they are actively investing Uh, there's many cases where they're still probably too fragmented and not necessarily focused as well as they could be but uh you know very few companies I'm aware of are shrinking their analytics investment or their teams most are growing it and they're struggling with the growing pains that come from it so you know I guess it, it, if you're someone who's only been on the job for 5 or 10 years I you know it'd be easy to grumble about some of the growing pains that are being felt and those are legitimate 
gripes, right? When you live it day to day, it's painful. But from my perspective, you know, it's amazing to be able to be arguing about exactly how fast we expand and what the priorities are that we hit first, as opposed to the old debate of why are you even here and why do you have a job, let alone you want to hire someone else, which was, was, uh, except for a few cutting edge companies, pretty much the state of it, uh, you know, back even in the nineties. Interesting. And, and, um, if you can also walk us through what is International Institute of, of, of Analytics, like what, what do you guys do? Yeah, that's a great question. So we were founded by uh, Tom Davenport, uh, who wrote, uh, most people might be familiar with the book, Compete on Analytics. Uh, the 10th anniversary just came out, in fact, uh, in the past six, seven months. Uh, we are a research and advisory organization. We do not sell any hardware or software. Mm-hmm. We also don't do any tactical implementation services. We won't build you models. We won't implement a platform. So we focus purely on providing uh, research. Uh, we provide, we do events. Uh, we provide uh, uh, access to our, our global expert network to ask questions um, and so forth. And to the extent we do consulting, it's really at the, at the strategy level. So the design, planning, and strategy of an analytics program at the program level Again, not, you know, how do you do this project? How do you do that project? So that, that's the space that we play in. Interesting. And, and what has been your observation, um, from, from IAS lens? How the industry is, um, is maturing in, in their analytics practices? Like what are some of the things that you could share that you are seeing that, um, um, that how the industry is maturing? I think one of the interesting things is there's still a lot of debate and, and Probably one of the most common questions we get asked about is how to structure the analytics organization overall. Mm. Um, I think the key is that the, the the nature of the question perspective from which it's being asked is actually pretty drastically different than a short time ago. Mm. I think it's because the natural progression tends to be you start with a fully decentralized team, right? So traditionally, marketing was often the first group in a lot of companies to have analytics. And then you know, somebody from supply chain noticed marketing was doing good things. They hire a few people. Finance maybe hires a few people to be deeper into forecasting. And you end up with a bunch of teams. So even a few years ago, the the conversation was generally around, we've got all these teams all spread out, and what do we do with them? Hmm. Um, there was then a period of time where there was almost a reaction too far the other way. A lot of companies started to combine all their teams into a centralized organization. Hmm. And I think that went a little bit too far. There's cases where that has worked and can work. But the problem is you end up then not being as tightly aligned in business units. Mm. There's funding issues, for example, if you're set up as an internal consulting where people have to pay you as they use you, of course, then they try not to use you, when, mm. especially when budgets are tight. If you're free, then they'll overwhelm you with requests because the mm. requests are free. And so what's happening now is most organizations are settling into what we would call a hybrid, one of several variations where there's probably some central organization where maybe a CAO sits and a couple of key execs helping to define the strategy and guide it. And then there's people dispersed out within operations, within supply chain, within marketing um, that uh, are embedded with those groups, but still have a relationship and accountability uh, to the centralized organization. So a lot of times when the question is asked today, um, there are still those further back, but a lot of the questions are more of, we've already got the central team and we've got some of these, uh, these embedded Units. How do we make them operate a little more effectively, and how do we how do we tweak the charter to maximize the impact? Which is a far different set of questions than, you know, uh, how do I consolidate everybody, or how do I, you know, how do I come to a mix in the first place? Interesting. And I think um, uh, I was talking to one of the sort of um, executive from Boston Ecosystem uh, who was building a, a company around data ops. 
so and and we were we were talking about how great analytics come from good data and good data come from fair enough it and and when you talk about sort of uh, in today's ecosystem of um, say shadow group and shadow sort of use cases and companies are building around it the it is getting very fragmented and sort of when the it is getting fragmented uh, their data sort of creating a central data archive or creating central data sort of lens is again getting getting messed up in that in that perspective and then obviously the analytics comes after that that that, that, that brings the insight it so what has been your observation like are you seeing from your vantage point the similar struggle between um, businesses getting value vis-a-vis it like when even your it is not organized the way it should be uh, to run for the future how can you generate uh, like insights that actually impact the future like what has been your observation we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job let's get back to the podcast yeah i think well there's the age old struggle with it and analytics teams and uh, again if you go back historically uh when I first started, everything was on the mainframe, and so mm-hmm. you were inherently mm-hmm. stuck going through IT. I mean, IT owned mm-hmm. the mainframe. There was no other option. There, were, there was no such thing as desktop uh, desktop analytical tool sets. Then, uh, when we went to more of the client server based methodologies, and you know, for example, there were years when I, you know, I owned our uh, my various companies' SaaS environments. We would effectively uh, create our own data environment outside of the official IT systems, and that was the standard for for many years where it was to your point, you know, shadow IT, whatever you may call it, where we had mm. full flexibility within our environment, but then we hit up against those barriers mm. of scalability and so forth. What started to happen over the last, especially uh, the last six, seven years as big data hit and, and it becomes impossible uh, for uh, a, a dedicated analytics system off on the side to necessarily handle all the data, let alone effectively mm. in an integrated fashion. It's kind of forced the marriage back where IT and analytics have tried to work together. There's been a ton of work on the platforms, everything from, you know, the, uh, the uh, classic engines like a Teradata or a, or, or a DB2 that have embedded analytics within it to the new engines like Hadoop and Spark where, you know, the, the work to enable analytics to occur right next to the data, uh, it's been extensive. And so today it is possible to have a system that has the data and that can execute the algorithms that we need all in one place and that can even be a production system. In reality, while that's still, while that's possible, in a lot of companies, the various policies and the and the politics that that dictate how those systems are used means that analytics teams still have a pretty difficult time in many cases mm-hmm. making use of that technology to its fullest extent, and they end up with uh, somewhere in the middle where the core data is in fact stored centrally. Uh, they do a lot of their processing at that central repository, but when it comes time to do the fancy stuff, they're pulling off there maybe ready to be modeled data sets which are obviously typically shrunk way down from the you know the uh, the raw data inside so you know in a customer example you could have terabytes or petabytes of customer mm-hmm. detail data but when you want to build a customer level model you know you're often building it to the customer level or you know customer product level etc um, I think there's still a lot of work to do uh, in terms of making analytics comfortable with turning some more things over to IT but also making IT comfortable allowing more of these analytics to happen on the systems because the the leaders in the industry, industry meaning analytics industry, mm. when you look at the companies, uh, you know, in the digital native space, uh, like an Amazon, et cetera, you know, they just, they, they are much more effective and, and grew up from the beginning 
having the analytics is an embedded mm. part of the process. So it's more natural to them. It's much more difficult for the, for the older companies to do it. And, but they've got to make that, you know, uh, try and make that journey or I don't think it's possible to be maximally effective. Interesting. I think you, you, you raise a very interesting point. So any business that has analytics in its culture uh, and, and sort of they're, they're, they're sort of, they're incubating it is doing relatively or, or sort of uh, significantly better than, than their peers. Now, if sort of, and and we know there are not there are not many businesses who are actually having analytics as an integrated practice within their culture. So, if you are told right. to sort of run an organization where this is this uh, this hypothetical is real, in which sort of uh, the culture is not data driven, it's it's very gut based organization, um, sort of doing its ways, and and now you have been given this task of um, contain this into a create a create a centralized analytics practice how would you do it? Like what are some of the things that you could suggest or, or sort of you, yeah. uh, you could share? I think the biggest thing, and, and so so one of the things we do at IA, we run, uh, we call an analytics leadership consortium. It's, hmm. it's a program where we explicitly get chief analytics officers, senior VPs of analytics from a, from a, a number of companies and we get them together on a regular basis in a cohort hmm. in the same group over hmm. time. And we hmm. talk about issues, exactly the kind of things you're talking, hey, I'm struggling with this. How hmm. did you guys do that? bring in guest speakers and so forth. And the point that where I'm heading with this is that it is almost in every unit item. And I think this comes down to if you desire to be a CAO or you're stepping into a senior analytics role, understanding what I'm about to say. And if you're hiring a CAO, understanding what I'm about to say, because it impacts expectations very heavily. Hmm. It's easy for an analytics person to step into a job with a bit of the, um, let's say, optimistic view that they're going to step into the role. They now have a charter to run analytics and everything's just going to flow from there. Uh, mm. You know, the fact their job exists means that the road's been paved and they just have to drive down. At the same time, it's easy if you're the, the non-analytics exec, let's say a COO or a CFO hiring that first CEO to assume now that I put this person in place, they'll know what to do. And the reality is, uh, as you pointed out, it's as much a cultural thing as a technological thing. And most mm. of the CAOs and senior analytics leaders I know in practice, while, you know, in theory, and one day, hopefully they will spend most of their time actually defining analytics processes, actually measuring their success of deployment. In reality, they're still today spending most of their time, you know, selling uh, mm. internally. Here's what we need to do. Here's why we need to do it. Here's what you'll get out of it. Hey, look, this stakeholder agrees that if you paired up in this way, this would work. And it's really uh, an ongoing, uh, it's an ongoing campaign in, in the literal sense of the word to get people to buy in. And I think that's a, you know, that that's a, an easy misconception. Just because, you know, I, we all have the idealized view of what a CAO does. And I think we all want a CAO to do that one day. Today, you've got to recognize if you're the person in the role or the person hiring the role, and it's going to take a couple of years, realistically, if you have a company that hasn't, you know, really had this before, for them to work through all of the, the cultural and process change, buy-in, and so forth. And to underestimate that, that's at your own peril because it's that's some huge headwinds that you're up against and you really have to put the effort and then plan your timeframes appropriately or else you end up committing to something in six months and then you know, you're know you over by, by a couple of quarters and, and you're being viewed as failing. Um, you know, whereas uh, maybe if you had been able to set the expectation properly, knowing the headwinds you're heading into, uh, you know, people will be able to at least see the progress that you, in fact, were making. Interesting. I think you're raising a very, very interesting point. So, um, even in, in 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 sort of in our experience, so we we either deal with so when you talk to chief data officer, 
side of the side of things right um, you will hear about their nightmare about <clears throat> data sources and 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 sort of getting it to give them data get the data sources that businesses could use if you talk about chief analytics sources as you rightly said their major migraine is in, in selling a very basic component that they think could deliver value of and justify the existence and both of these guys like pretty much burning down on on sort of and getting their normal um, sort of uh, ecosystem prepped that will sort of help them generate and, and help them show their next value how would they, how would sort of what would you suggest to uh, some of the some of the uh, techniques or strategies that either chief analytics officers or chief data officers could pursue to help them sell faster um, and and sort of get through actually get delivering value that they have been hired to do we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job let's get back to the podcast yeah so i think part of the key is this there's and this gets back to when i mentioned earlier how it used to be uh, virtually impossible to truly deploy analytics out out in the systems it was always this offline thing and that mm-hmm. limited its impact a lot of the low hanging fruit you know the stuff that you can do by following the old processes of i'm going to pass data off run it overnight and then pass it back in uh you know all of those not all but that the problems that fit that model are largely solved right and and a lot of companies have it the new the new use cases where the big value is are those that really get embedded so you know if you're doing supply chain it's about actually updating mm-hmm. forecasts and having those forecasts feed into the system in a way that alters where you're shipping product, how much product you're ordering, changing, you know, truck routes uh, almost on the fly. And so the, mm-hmm. the, the challenge there becomes, I can have the analytics proven 100%. I could even show you the evidence for the analytics. The problem then is that in order to make those analytics realize that potential, I'm going and touching the core operational systems that are running the business. And that makes people mm-hmm. who own those systems and whose jobs on the line for them working smoothly very nervous. Now, I'm not just talking from the IT side, I mean from the business side. If you own supply chain and you're currently um, at least succeeding on your metrics, I may tell you that I can increase you by two percentage points and you love that, but you see the risk that as I start to implement this and I inadvertently, as always happens, something goes wrong on a few spots that causes problems, I could drop you a few percentage points in the short term. That's an intimidating and risky thing. And so I think laying that groundwork up front to understand not just what your analytics team will be doing from an analytical perspective and, and how that would prove out to have lift and benefit the business side, but simultaneously be working both with the IT team and the business team around, if this stuff works as we hope, what do we actually have to do to implement it? So technically, what does IT have to enable for this to run? And then from the business side, what do you have to change in terms of the processes you're currently following? Maybe the applications and interfaces that your warehouse personnel or your or your uh, product owners are using to order goods and materials, et cetera, and talk that through up front and be mapping it out because it takes a while to get the analytics done. And if you wait till the analytics are done to start that second layer discussion, you're you know uh, you're in trouble. I'll give you an example. I actually wrote a blog on this about second order analytics. Hmm. How you know you get to the finish line, then you realize you have another another entire level to go. So I was talking to a large, uh, uh, they manufacture big stuff like airplanes. Hmm. And he, and the gentleman was mentioning to me how they had come up with some really good predictive uh, maintenance algorithms where the assembly line, they were able to identify when certain uh, 
either pieces of equipment were having trouble or they could identify that certain items coming off the line were starting to be a little bit less consistent so that they had to go in and do a repair. Mm-hmm. They said they were initially really excited about this because they found some, some big opportunities. But once they had that, what they then realized, and he wished they had realized this up front, was so now we know a given piece of equipment is actually needing repair. If you're just driving your car to work every day, that's a pretty easy problem to solve. The first chance you can get to the to the uh, mechanic, you do it. When you're building hundreds of million dollar items with contractual penalties and you know a bunch of people showing up for work or not, he said, even if we knew something was at risk, we then had to go to another layer of analysis of, well, how risky is it? Can it wait until mm-hmm. our next plan downtime? Can it wait until this order that we're almost done with where there's big penalties close to the deadline is done and then we can postpone a little bit if we had to the next order because it's smaller and it, there's no penalties associated. So the point is the dollar values of the process that they were interrupting for the maintenance were so valuable that they actually had another layer of optimization they had to do that had nothing to do with the initial analytic. I now know this machine is going out. Given the probability it goes out in certain time frames, how risky is it for me to fix it now? versus a week from now versus a month from now and what are the trade-offs in terms of costs that I will be guaranteed to hit if I take it down this week versus what are the potential costs if it actually broke in the middle of the run in two weeks because I wanted to wait for three weeks. And and, and that's sudden behind by, as you can imagine, a good amount of time. That's an entirely uh, separate level of, of, of issue to solve. And that back to my other point then, as you're solving the core analytic problem, you've got to be working through what are the downstream impacts of this on the IT and business side so mm-hmm. you can start to at least lay out the initial plans and frameworks that, of course, will need some testing and may have some hiccups, but you're ready to go versus, again, you're done in a year with the analytics, but then you're starting from square zero. You delay yourself a year, year and a half, two to get anything actually recognized in terms of value because you have to go through the pain of all of that integration work when you, you know starting from the finish line of the analytics. Interesting. And, and and from from your vantage point and your interaction with other businesses, what are some of the things that you think business don't get it about data analytics or, or, or they get it wrong? Or what what are some of the some of the thoughts there? Well, it's interesting. There are a couple of things. One is obviously just having the data thrown out there does not mm. equal having the analytics done nor having the mm. analytics able to scale and be implemented. So I think, Good point. you know, in recent times, um, so first of all, let me just start by saying the, the available technologies and architectures today compared to even a decade ago are amazing, right? Mm. If I wanted to start up a company today, I could go out and and, and on a pretty small budget, probably in the tens or, or at most hundreds of thousands, if I was really going big, I could go out on the cloud set up every kind of, of data container I need with every kind of analytic tool on top, have a point of sale system set up, capturing data. I mean, it's amazing how affordable it is versus it used to be I'd have to be buying literally huge, massive systems that I'd hardly use initially, but you kind of it's kind of like you have a car or you don't. You've got to buy the car to even start mm. being a driver. Now we're able to just go rent, you know, rent the systems, rent the car. So the, the, the point is there's a lot more flexibility today, which uh, I think helps uh, helps, but one of the mistakes is just because it's cheap to slap up a container and then throw some data in it doesn't mean the data has been cleaned properly. Doesn't mean that you can, that, that even if you're accessing it, you can process it at scale or that the, you know, it can integrate in with the other systems. So I think one of the mistakes is, again, people have been so hungry for the ability to do something that they go and do things very sloppily and the easiest possible way. And then on the back end of that, they realize, okay, great. I've proven this over here in a way now that I, I, I haven't even uh, 
thought of how the heck I would actually deploy it within my business environment because it's a completely different environment. So I think, I think there's that accounting up front. The, mis- the mistake people make is uh, trying to build things in the way they should be built ideally, mm-hmm. which is great target state, but not uh, balancing that with what is actually in place today at the organization and what could actually be deployed you know, right now, if you're going to have to integrate with a mainframe, for example, mm-hmm. all the fancy cloud stuff, well, it might help with the processing, but at the end of the day, that data's got to get back in a mainframe. That's not pretty. We all wish it didn't happen, but in large existing enterprises, that happens every day. And that's why I think the digital natives have such an example or a new, a new startup. You don't have to be a digital mm-hmm. native anymore. I, I, I think uh, digital native used to imply, you know, pure web-based or e-based organizations. I think today, like if I was starting a retailer today, even if I had a physical presence, with these systems available, I could uh, start with data infusing everything I, I, I did from the uh, uh, from the get go. The, the companies have been around a while. It's a huge hurdle. Much like laying a new highway is pretty easy. And I can tell you in Atlanta, where I live, you know, they're redoing one of the major interchanges between two of the busiest interstates. It's a many year project involving, I think it's a, a, a billion or two dollars because it's you have to keep all this heavy traffic flowing while you build the new stuff. If you were to be able to shut down the highways and just build the new interchanges, I bet they could be done in six, you know, six months. Um, and I think that's the same dilemma faced by the large companies. Even as you try and move forward, you can't break the old stuff and you have to keep the old stuff operating. And eventually you can flip the switch, but it's a lot more difficult than it is if you're just going to say, I've got Greenfield, go build this thing. Interesting. I think um, one of the interesting points you raised is so just data probably won't cut it, right? So. If 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 you think about say, as as an analytics um, leader, you are aligned more closely with business, right? So you you are you align with the business story. You have to align sort of how much insights you can deliver to a business story to get get to an outcome. But a good analytics is uh, powered by a, a probably some data, right? So if if we talk about say future, uh, what do you think would be future um, aligned with? Is it is it aligned with data or analytics like wh- which side would you side uh, if, if you talk about like future of doing business wow i i think the two are just inter- are, are intertwined uh it's mm-hmm. funny my blog just last week was uh uh was called i can't remember the exact term but is is data now more of a di- differentiator than mm-hmm. analytics mm-hmm. and the, the premise of the article was uh, came to me at our event a month ago in santa clara i actually had the opportunity over a couple of days to have you know, one venture capitalist presented to our public event, and we had a couple mm. other venture capitalists speak to our private, some of our private executive events, and all of them hit on a very similar theme, which is, if you think back, um, again, let's just go back even to the 2000s, uh, the first decade. Um, most companies had substantially the same data. So every mm. retailer mm. had their point of sale data, most mm. with a customer number attached. All the banks had the same data. So you start with the same data. The way you differentiate it was to do better analytics on that, that mm. data. And to do those analytics, you had to have specialized skills, specialized tools, et cetera. Well, what's happened in the last several years now, uh, the ubiquitousness of, of algorithms being available is amazing. I mean, it's not just a few high-end commercial tools that have algorithms. There's open source projects, very robust ones. And then there's little, I'll call them widgets, little rentable widgets that do one thing quickly from an analytical perspective. So algorithms are, are available cheaply and easily to just about anyone. What this leads to now is that the VC said if a company comes to us and their core differentiator is simply a set of algorithms on a given data set, 
they're hesitant to invest because the bar uh, or the barrier to entry of another competitor is fairly low, meaning if they got some other smart people, they could probably replicate those uh, analytics. Um, it might take some time and effort, of course, but they're replicatable versus what's happening today is companies are differentiating themselves by having unique data that they're collecting um, that adds value in and of itself. So in the self-driving car industry, for example, there's entire companies set up that are doing nothing but creating self-driving training data where there's mm. a video going down the road and everything's tagged, a stop sign, a crosswalk, et cetera, because that's what's needed. Mm. Every car company could theoretically create their own training data. The problem is it's very expensive and painful and boring. So these companies are creating it and then they sell it and they're making, you know, they're, they're, they're profitable. And so once I have a large, robust, self-driving car training data set that I've spent millions to collect. And I have relationships with the big manufacturers to buy that mm. data. The barrier for someone to enter and compete against me mm. is incredibly high. I have the relationships. I have the data. I've already paid the money. Um, the analytics on top of it now, the car companies are attempting, obviously, to, to, to outdo each other. And where I ended in the blog was there are absolutely still cases where analytics drive uh, you know, drive it. Mm. And there are now cases, though, where the data is really the differentiator on a business. The ultimate is to find that place where you can have both. So, for example, in the uh, video game industry, I know of a, a customer who thinks that they're collecting better in-game data than some mm -hmm. of their competitors. So they're all collecting in-game data, but it'd be the equivalent to capturing more detail somehow in a transactional record, right, in a classic retail sense. So maybe they're collecting the equivalent of the quick screen from a website when the others still have just the aggregate, what did someone buy? And they're analyzing that, they think, more effectively and feeding it back into the game. So they have a differentiator based on we've already collected better data that inherently gives us better info. And then we've built some better analytics using the data. That's the real differentiator. So I think today you have to focus on the data and the analytics in combination. If you're trying to only differentiate on data, um, again, a niche company, that, that could be okay. If you want to differentiate only on analytics, you better keep way ahead and have some mm. of the smartest people in the world to continuously top everybody else. The real sweet spot today is how do I continue to add new, novel, valuable data and then pair that with new analytics that are more powerful. I think that's the that's the paradigm shift from, you know, where for a number of years it was an analytics arm race. Now it's an analytics and data arms race. Interesting. And so um, if, if I'm a, a, a either a professional or an executive at a company, how important do you think it is me to understand analytics, to understand this paradigm shift uh, that you're talking about? Well, I think it's really important. And, I, I, you know, this is one of the things I, I often have people complain to me. So when I'm dealing with a client that's actually on the business side, let's say you're, you're talking to even, a, let's say, a mid-level director of marketing, even sometimes a VP of marketing who uh, has grown up in the digital age and is used to all of the analytics, et cetera. There's still a lot of super senior executives out there at the CMO, CEO level who didn't grow up in that era at all, right? And who were already in a senior management position before all of this analytics and technology hit. And so while they conceptually see that it's important and so forth, when they were actually in the trenches, they didn't have it. They know how things ran then. And what happens is sometimes that can be a barrier to, to you know, those people embracing analytics as fully as they need it. What I always tell people when they're frustrated about still struggling to get support from the top is mm. that, again, back years ago, it was hard to get support above the manager level. Hardly anyone says it's hard to get support above the manager level anymore because anybody at manager and directors probably only been working. Um, at, at it, well, either they're young enough, they only grew up in the analytic area or being at that level for a long period of time, they've had to adapt to it. 
now it's the VPs maybe complaining about the sea level. But in, within another five, 10 years, as that top layer does one more turnover, I think you're really truly going to have people from top to bottom in most companies that not only appreciate analytics, but have worked personally with analytics, if not generating them, using them and making business decisions on them. And I think that's going to make uh, things a whole lot easier. I think that that's the last barrier we have. It's just the top layer, maybe two at really huge companies where there's people who can still potentially be resistant to uh, the, the change that's coming. And so the good news is, again, that'll time out. It's just a matter of, it's hard to be patient, but uh, and you should still push, but the problem will be solved. It's a matter of how fast we can you know, make it happen. Interesting. And and one thing that I was thinking about um, was that uh, this AI, right? AI is expanding, its capabilities expanding nowadays. How much of analytics uh, in enterprise world do you think would 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 be powered by AI? Like, or like, do you think really still human created analytical models would be relevant uh, with the advent of AI? What would be the role of analytics professional going forward? What what, what would you think? Yeah. So let me uh, let me actually address it a little bit different. Let's uh, let let's for the sake of your question assume AI is yet another set of algorithms that could be applied to any given situation. Hmm. Um, this is something else I I, I wrote uh, Tom Davenport and I for our predictions this year. One of them was called uh, the post algorithmic era has arrived, and that was one of my hmm. blogs I think for maybe January this year. And it's not as extreme as it sounds. So so let me hmm. explain. Does that mean algorithms are 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 over? No, of mm. course not. Algorithms are as important as ever growing, and so we're going to continue to embed them everywhere. But back to my earlier point, when I was young in my career, a huge chunk of my value to an organization was the fact that a I understood the algorithms because no one did. B I actually um, had access to the tools that had those algorithms because back then there was only one or two tool sets that would even let you run an algorithm, and they involved a lot of heavy coding. So back in, in my day, there were some tools like SAS, Statistica, maybe MATLAB, but they're all heavy. At that point, were hardcore coding environments. So you needed someone who understood the algorithms, who could actually get access to that software and could actually program it. So my mm -hmm. value to the business people was being able to get them those algorithms to do something for them. As things have evolved, and back to part of our earlier conversation today, having access to an algorithm is, is not a differentiator anymore. And mm. they're, they're accessible in environments that do not require heavy coding anymore either. You can pass a data set, and have it run a regression decision tree and AI mm. routine, any of those. Not the same as saying someone who doesn't know what they're doing can't screw it up. I'm just saying it's not mm. a differentiator that I, I can't say I have value because I can call an AI algorithm for you. So what this means uh, now is that we have to look for other ways to have value. Uh, because compounding that, is uh, with this ubiquitousness and the processing power, there are multiple tools out there now where you can give it a data set uh, with a certain type of data for a certain class of problem, and that tool set will literally run every conceivable algorithm that's known to man that could that fits that specific scenario with dozens or thousands of options if needed within each of those to find the best model. So one of my other value props years back was I could look at a given data set and a given problem from experience go, for this churn model, I think this type of formulation will work best. And it was critical that I was pretty good at that because we couldn't afford the processing to do more than a, than a, a few iterations, and I had to be pretty close. Today, even if I came to you, and even if you had confidence that 99% of the time I would be correct in what I mm -hmm. thought would be the winner, it's so cheap and easy to go run all of them, my answer would be, you know, I know, I know you're 99% of the time right, but <coughs> it's so cheap. Let's go run them all and see if you're right. And I'll give you a gold star if you were right again, but we're going to validate it. And so where I think we're heading 
is an environment where the analytics people have to take it up a layer and be more of an, an orchestrator and an architect who's making sure the right problems are being addressed and that the right data is get coming together to address those problems and looking for the novel ways to apply the data. But when it comes time to do the modeling, to your point, I don't think there will be guys like you and me sitting there actually coding and saying, try this option, try that option, unless you're truly on a very cutting edge, brand new method you're sort of embedding, some new variation on AI. And, and, and so that can be a little scary to some people. Um, but I, I look at it this way. That means I can be orchestrating four, five, ten problems in the same time it would have taken me to do a lot of hardcore coding and experimentation and waiting for things to run on one problem. So I can actually add a lot more value. And I think the, 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 the trap we have to avoid, and I've written about this before too, is just because you can easily access an algorithm and pass data to it does not mean it's a smart idea for someone who doesn't know what they're doing to do it. So even though, you know, you have a tool that'll find the very best algorithm to predict this factor from these variables, I still want someone who understands the theory and the math and the, and the analytics behind it to make sure we've asked the question properly, that we're predicting the actual correct best variable to predict, that the variables that will be attempting to predict it are actually the right ones. Those are the most important decisions before you do the algorithm. And I think historically, that's always been probably some of the most critical parts of an analytics person's job. But the, the modeling itself is what always got the focus or the, uh, the attention. So I, I don't even think as I say this, we're taking away the most important parts of an analytics person's job so much. Certainly not mm. the most interesting parts. I mean, the, the programming was never the most interesting. I mean, I enjoyed it uh, mm. when I was doing it. But it was really defining the problem, laying out that data set, laying out how you, how you formulate those models. That was the most mentally intensive and the most uh, business impactful. I think that will still be there. Interesting, and I think one thing that 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 I can I can think about on this topic of whether whether we how how our role should should progress as a statistician working on this model and what and what not. So I was uh, at an event um, uh, in in Boston locally, and and I was talking to a mathematical mathematics professor, and and we had this conversation about uh, when the mathematics was created, we were not dealing with that amount of data, right? So numbers were small, they were manageable, mm -hmm. they were quantifiable. Infinity was still a very far-reaching uh, sort of. It's still a far-reaching, but still the numbers have grown a lot since then. And and the perspective was when when it was designed, it was designed for those small numbers. But the moment we're talking about frequency and and sort of and magnanimity of these numbers, if if you if you talk it if if you look at many of the mathematical journals, they talk about hey uh, uh, the winter is coming, the winter is coming around around this their mathematical model that are going on. And as an enterprise, we are relying more and more on, on sort of the statistical models that were created probably 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and, and heavily relying on those. So one of the thoughts sort of um, as, 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 a, as, a, as an analytics professional, uh, I, get, I get anxious about is I don't calibrate my model that, that much against that. How is responding to the error bars? Like are there error bars that I should be worried about? And and is really my mathematical model at the top of its game when I'm dealing I'm dealing with petabyte data nowadays compared to maybe a gigabyte or, or megabyte data a couple of probably couple of years ago not even decades. So what's your perspective if you wear a chief analytics officer's hat? Uh, what do you suggest that how how sort of anxious or how uh, what are you thinking about about this 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 concept of uh, how mathematical model used to sort of when they were created they were not playing with that much data. And right now we're dealing with data that they have, we can't even imagine during that time when they were created. So I, I, this is something I, 
I actually, uh, and you know, people would say, oh, well, you're, you know, you're biased because, you know, mm -hmm. you learned all this back then. But I still think a lot of these algorithms are, are as uh, valid as ever because mm -hmm. what they're doing, it is true, they were originally created um, when there wasn't much data. But let's just take a, a very classic, one of the most basic examples, a classic linear regression model. Mm -hmm. The model itself is run off of a matrix, which is mm -hmm. N by N, with mm -hmm. N being how many variables you have, right? So the point is, I could have 200 petabytes of customer data, or I could have a gigabyte of customer data. The size of the matrix I have to actually uh, use to get my parameters is based on how many variables I have, not how much raw data I have. And 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 what that matrix gets you then is a is a, a set of, of parameters that help assess how much each of those factors actually influence the thing you're interested in influencing. What percentage mm -hmm. of the variance is actually explained? And there's a place for that even today. I mean, the bottom line is that's what people want. I have petabytes of data. I want to know how to predict, uh, you know, who's going to uh, click on this website. Or I want to predict how much I need to order on my on my supply chain. And I think the fact that there's a lot more data doesn't in any way invalidate um, the, the algorithms. I think there's more, you know, there's some newer methodologies that aren't as statistically based that just look for patterns. But I, my argument has always been, even if I'm looking for patterns, I still think that you want to. So, so I used to talk about sequence analytics, right? Like um, uh, when it comes to uh, say uh, impacting a, um, a uh, an online purchase, right? Did I read an email and then I clicked and then I went to the web page and then I hit buy, or did I, you know, see an ad and then later come in directly, then hit an email, etc. When you want to analyze those patterns across all that, those petabytes of data, the beauty is you have such a huge sample size mm. of of sessions that you probably any any pattern of action that happens more than a, one out of a several million times you probably have a sufficient amount of data on to actually assess is mm -hmm. it statistically uh, superior to other patterns and is it one that you want to um, incent or disincent and so even as you're using uh, some non-statistical pattern recognition I still think on the back end what you want to do then is use some of the you know classical methods to determine of the patterns I've now found that are highly frequent, are they actually different in practice in terms of their impact? And the way to measure that, you know, there's a lot of cases it can be as easy as this. I've identified the 100 top patterns that lead to a purchase on my website. Mm. You can do a, just a classic means comparison. This converted X percent of the time, this converted Y, this converted Z. Are those in fact different, right? Um, it's, you know, the, uh, and even at that, are they different from a practical business perspective? The big, the big flaw with some of the statistical methodologies is that the sample size goes to mm. infinity mm. and gets big. The differences that are quote statistically significant become incredibly, mm. incredibly, mm. incredibly small. Mm. And so I think the 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 difference is that you you know you can validate that a difference may exist, but you have to do a second layer, which is then to say, is it actually meaningful in a business context? So maybe I'm confident I get 10% extra clicks with path one versus path mm. two. If it costs me double to do the marketing required to incent path one, but I'm only getting 10% extra clicks, then probably that may not be, uh, uh, you know, worthwhile. Or there, you know, there's other factors. So I think, I think there's, you know, it, it's a matter of being smart. It's like everything. Use the right tool for the right job. I think there's plenty of places classic stats apply. I think there's other places where some of the newer techniques can work. And I think there's a lot of cases you can combine the two and get better. Uh, get a better result from having combined them than either would do on its own, which is the whole the whole point of these things like an ensemble model or even these tools that try every type of model. The idea is, you know, use them all to their strength and and let the you know let the uh, the data and the business problem you're looking at 
dictate what actually is the best way rather than us predetermining. Interesting. And and if if we talk about say AI, right? So if we stick to the AI piece, and as a, a, a how much do you think a business should experiment on AI? Like how much do you think AI is prime time nowadays to a point where business should consider it seriously? And do you have any benchmarks or any any sort of suggestions of hey, you should do at least get AI into that much ecosystem? Like do you have any perspective on that? Yeah. So, so first of all, AI is definitely real today. One of the things, um, I just gave a keynote this week at a, a University of Cincinnati um, business analytics event. And, you know, one of the first points I open with is what makes it real today, and I, I won't get into all the details, but right, the processing mm-hmm. power is massively higher and cheaper. We've mm-hmm. got all the algorithms easy to access, and we've got the data to do it. So if you look at, you know, the big use cases everyone hears about with uh, AI today, it's image, video, text. Well, you know, it's only been the last few years that anyone actually even captured that data. So image recognition wasn't relevant for most businesses when they literally had no images captured and stored and ready for analysis anywhere. Um, obviously, that's starting to change. So mm-hmm. I think today uh, a lot of AI is being applied in those areas that's based on the new data. Um, some companies have a lot of need for that. Other companies, not so much. Um, and I think it's a matter, like always, you start with what problems you have to solve today. And then you figure out what the right techniques are. And a lot of companies are doing the same problem that people had with big data, which was big data was a huge trend. So everyone wanted to go do something with big data. Everyone started buying big data systems and loading up big data sources, but they hadn't actually figured out what they're going to do with it. I think that's a little bit of what I see some organizations doing with AI. They're going out and buying AI, uh, AI platforms and doing AI projects simply because they can, and they haven't necessarily determined those are the really where the top priorities for the business should be today. Where they are, they should absolutely pursue it. And over time, I think it'll become integrated in. But uh, I think, it, you know, this is one of these times you want to temper it and go back to the basics of identifying, mm-hmm. you know, what do you need to do? Why do you need to do it? And uh, and let that guide you um, to, to what you need. Um, back to our, our comment a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. I actually asked, Asked this question at the conference, and I'm, I'm, if, uh, you know, if anybody wants to email in from our podcast, I'm trying to find anyone who's actually done research on this topic, and I may have to go do it if I can't find anyone who has, which is this. There's a lot of AI case studies where it's been proven on things like the image recognition and the natural language processing uh, in those areas, and there's really hardly anything that could possibly mimic it in those areas. What I haven't seen is a classic case where you simply want to, want to forecast how much to order uh, uh, next, over the next month or two, or you want to, you want to tee up the next best offer. And, and those actually tend to be using classical data sources, classical in quotes. I mean, many of them we didn't have till a few years ago. The point is, you know, your classic, um, it's a customer with a huge, very, uh, number of factors. I haven't heard a lot of AI being used in those scenarios and substantially outperforming, um, especially given the cost and effort to do it today, some of the classic things. Now, that could be because no one's tried. Mm. It could be because they've tried, succeeded, and are keeping it quiet in stealth mode because they know it's a competitive differentiator. It could be because people have tried and they haven't been able to get um, AI to address some of the classical problems better than uh, than some of the, the methods that we've spent years developing. So I think that's, that, that's the most interesting thing to me is, is um, will will AI uh, start to permeate and knock the champions out in a lot of the classic areas with with you know decades long research and optimization uh, in place, or 
or will it, you know, be more applied to these areas where there frankly was no other alternative until mm-hmm. AI came along, like the, uh, you know, the image recognition. There just weren't really any practical ways to do that, um, uh, either cost-wise or, or, or accuracy-wise um, to the extent you could afford to do it. Interesting. I think one one example that that I can I can recall um, regarding sort of uh, AI used to measure inventory system. So I, I was talking to this this company, um, a Fortune Head company, uh, into uh, this uh, FMCG or CPG, and 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 they were talking about. So their leader was talking about that he was given this task of managing inventory, understanding inventory without looking at the existing system because it's it's live, it's line of business. So they cannot touch and sort of it would take a lot of uh, heavy lifting and selling this idea of getting new methodology. And his task was, hey, create a create a model through your innovative ways and run in parallel. And we will we will see it run for a couple of years before we can build a comfort that we can transition over to something like that. And it's a it's a it's it's a cultural mess then. Like after that, it's just the and I think you were rightly point out that one of the major job of CAO is right now selling and selling and selling this this idea of uh, is getting used. And then this is something which is if it's in line of business area, um, it just gets really really tricky in in selling that. That's I think one of the data data point that I I can contribute that I've heard recently. Yeah, no, I think I I think you're right, and and you know you hit on it. It gets back to. You know, the one analogy I use is there were there were countries in the world that had virtually no infrastructure mm. that didn't have telephones. No mm. one was in communication. And many of them just skipped landlines and went straight to a cellular network. Mm. In some cases, their networks are actually better on average than even in the United States today because the U.S., first of all, uh, it still has to maintain the legacy landline infrastructure. But second of all, began with what's now legacy cell phone infrastructure mm. and has to go through processes of upgrades and uh and redeployments versus if you can go straight to the latest, newest stuff, you have a big advantage. So I think what you just hit on is a great way for existing companies mm-hmm. to potentially really adapt to all this new stuff, which is, um, uh, you know, potentially consider, you know, not, not a shadow IT, but a shadow business process mm-hmm. where you're over time building this new thing that you're able to test because, you you know, it might be on a, on a day or week delay even because, you know, you have to wait. Um, you can't interrupt the actual system doing it, but once the system's done for the week, the real system, you can get that week's data and just let your new system run through it. It's just a week behind, and you can wonder what it would have done. You know, in the worst of cases, you could do it that way. Um, but over time, then, you're able to develop the whole new system from scratch, and at some point, you click it over. Again, back to the road analogy, that that, that would be one where instead of redoing the, the the full existing interchange where different pieces come on and off in time, every now and then, you know, they'll build a whole new bridge where they build the entire new bridge next to the other one. They set up the new lane and there's mm-hmm. no transition period. Literally one day at midnight, they shut the whole road down. They move the cones from the old bridge and remove them from the new bridge and all the traffic starts flowing. And that would be the analog to what you're describing there. You're building, testing, getting it done in parallel and have a hard switch where it's all or nothing as mm-hmm. opposed to a short transition where the left side of the interchange is done this, you know, this year and the next side is on the next year and You've got the mix of old and new. Um, I think some of the some of the problems um, are going to require almost that entire uh, let let's let's build a, a, a parallel universe like uh, like the bridges. Mm. Interesting point. And and uh, b- before we get to the last leg of, of the conversation, I think I I, I want to, I also want your perspective deeply about um, your ex- uh, something like blockchain, right? So we mm-hmm. are seeing this technology. Um, 
obviously building uh, bringing some trust and, and sort of some some sort of uh, transparency to the system but a nightmare for compute a nightmare for sort of computational processing how do you how do you evaluate something like this uh, from your uh, analytics executives vantage point uh, your appreciation for something like this right so so let's let's start with the premise let's not even worry about the merits or lack thereof of blockchain as a technology mm. and everything that it can do. Let's simply look at it as a data source that we could analyze, okay? Mm. So you tell me, I've got this blockchain repository set up, it's got something in it that I need to analyze. Here's the challenge, um, and, and I, I think this was one of my blogs last fall. It's actually a bit of a nightmare today because mm. within that blockchain repository, first of all, the entire uh, stack has been developed not to enable analytics, but to enable trusted, secure mm. transactions to occur and be recorded. So by definition, mm. as opposed to a lot of the analytical platforms, they were built and optimized to do analytics. That's why they existed. Mm. You're, you're, when a system is built for something that has nothing to do with analytics, you can be sure that at best it's mm. an afterthought analytics, and at worst it may, it may not have been given any thought whatsoever. I think with blockchain, it's much towards no thought whatsoever. So let's assume I wanted to go query a blockchain. Uh, repository. Well, as of today, it's basically a recursive search. So I want to know, you know, um, what are your what are your transaction uh, transactional history over time? Well, I have to go in and then look recursively through all these records to find at any point in time what you did and didn't have. I don't even know how many recursive uh, searches I have to go backwards until I've completed them, and I have to do that for every single item that you did own or may have at one point owned. And then, by the way. That processing is being distributed to computers I don't control that have a copy of the repository where you're going to blow up. You know, these aren't necessarily high-end analytical powerhouses. So these kind of analytical queries to do that recursive search, they're not meant to do that. It might be very, very inefficient. The code mm -hmm. you have to write could be very difficult. So mm -hmm. my view is that trying to analyze directly off a of blockchain repository is going to be brutally painful. Not necessarily that it's not technically solvable to code it. I just think the mm. uh, the hammering of the system it'll do, the slowdown of the system, and back to the operational versus the analytical. Talk about flipping the IT guys out. You try and run an analytical query against the blockchain repository, it might bring it to its knees, much like the old days. So I think we're going to have to come up with some kind of a, a middle ground. And my, and my thought is you put a set of analytic views that sit against a blockchain repository and much mm. like... Uh, we did in a lot of days of data warehousing and so forth, where you might have had some summary tables that for performance reasons, you actually created that summary physically. I think we'll have to have some of those against the blockchain repositories where we create some of these aggregates and these uh, these summaries that, that run somewhat infrequently and are updated. Uh, and then we, we largely hit those so as to avoid having to directly query the, uh, the repository. One big advantage for this over a classic uh, architecture is that in a relational environment or a, any other transactional environment uh, in history, you could go back and change things. So I might mm -hmm. have your transaction today, but then I find that it was misentered, you know, the wrong, you, you know, I inadvertently put the wrong expiration date on your credit card, or I accidentally said that you bought a product that we then found out you didn't because you came back for a refund. We would mm -hmm. actually change retroactively, potentially that transaction and blockchain, it never changes. So if we have any kind of, um, any kind of uh, aggregates that look at history, once they're computed once, we should never have to recompute the historical part. We would only have to update them to the extent that new history would would uh, would impact them. So it it would it would minimize the amount of reprocessing, if you will, um, that we might have to do. Um, but 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 in any case, I think 
from an analytics perspective, there are going to be some challenges and figure out how to actually make that work, which is totally different from saying the data in there and the processes it's enabling, you know, do or don't have value. Interesting, beautiful point. And and again, Bill, thank you so much for um, giving your insight on such a critical topic. So now let's let's spend. We are at the last leg of a conversation. So let's spend a few okay. minutes on on your background and 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 in your journey. So in your journey, like what are one, two, three point of success that you would say that that has helped you stay sane throughout this evolution? Like what what are some of the things that you would suggest anyone looking to get into the leadership roles on on analytics or what do you think that uh, how what would you attribute it, attribute your success to? All right, a couple of I guess a couple of things that are probably somewhat interrelated. Um, and so, for one thing, obviously, I think having come from a background of being hands-on, coding the models, manipulating the data, um, it's a big advantage. As I hear people talking about what they're going to do, even if they're doing something I've never done explicitly, like predictive maintenance mm-hmm. model, just having a fundamental understanding of the general way this kind of stuff works and being able to visualize it in my head has been helpful. So I I think to the extent that 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 people um, uh, you know today that want to be a CAO do uh, do appreciate the skills they're learning as they're hands-on early in their career, I think that's important. I think another another key thing. I was very lucky early on that I recognized the reality of the selling and the positioning and the politicking, and I you know from an early point, I you know I went several of my jobs in a row. I was literally the first analytically oriented person ever hired in that company to build their first analytics systems or consulting practices, et cetera. And so, you know, from day one, I, I was the guy they brought in and basically said, all right, we don't know what the heck it is you do. Go figure this out for us. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I realized early it wasn't about me going, uh, closing a door and coming back six months later with some, here's what I'm going to, here's what I've done. Isn't this amazing? I, you know, I really spent a lot of time understanding what did they actually need? How would they actually use it? When they say they need X, do they really mm. mean that or do they think they mean that? And so I think that that portion of the job cannot be underestimated. I, I would argue anyone who thinks that the um, selling and politicking is just a waste of time and they don't want to do it, that's fine. It's not for everyone. Then you mm. ought to focus on the technical side of the career path and you ought to look to be you know, the, the, the head architect for the CAO or the you know, the head of the, the, the deep dive AI team, uh, because I don't think you can succeed without that. And then tied to that, but slightly different, was also um, something I've always believed in strongly, the recognition of that. Um, how do you present things back and storytell and make things accessible? Mm. Uh, I, I can recall times in my career getting literally in yelling matches with people on my team mm. when I was telling them to take it up a layer. We can't go in with all these p-values. We can't go in with all these parameter estimates. We got to get down to what does this person care about? I'd have people, mm. but Bill, if we don't give them this, we're not giving them the facts they need to make an informed decision, blah, blah, blah. But, well, you know what? Mm. These are facts that are needed for an informed decision, but our job is to make sure that those facts have been checked and that we're informed as we tell them what they need to know, which is really the result of what came out of all of these p-values and parameter estimates. The business people, even if we give it to them, they don't care. They don't understand it. They don't know how to make a decision based on that. They're not trained. Mm-hmm. It's like if someone, if I had a mechanic coming to me, and instead of just saying, you've got a, uh, you know, you've got a problem with your transmission, mm-hmm. and I did a bunch of tests, I can, here's the list of tests I ran, and I'm telling you, it tells me we need to do this, whatever it is. I'm mm-hmm. like, great, go do it. 
I actually feel much worse if he comes to me, we did this test and here's what it says and this test and this test and this test. So you, do you agree with me based on all of this that we ought to go do this work? I, mean, mm. well, I don't know. I don't understand these tests. I don't understand mm. these implications or how they interact. I hired you to fix my engine. Mm. You go fix it. And if I, I believe these tests make sense and I'm trusting your judgment, it, you'll do the right thing. And we have to look at ourselves that way. Um, and, and, and you're, you know, to your peers, you might want to prove your technical acumen and show that you did all the right checks and you have all the data and facts behind it. When you go to that business partner, it's much more like when you take your car and you got to think, what do they really need to know to understand the decision they should make, what benefit they'll have, and have trust that you're basing that recommendation on all this other stuff that they frankly don't want to deal with. And I think it's our job to not make them deal with it. Whereas a lot of people think it's their job to deal with it. And I think that's a fundamental distinction that holds, holds people back. You see people all the time, really mm. smart. I've done really good analytics and he's actually like, you know what? Can, can I have Bob come instead of mm. Sue? Cause Sue just, I can never understand mm. where she's going or she overwhelms me. I really like Bob's style. And, and often it's not that Bob is a better analytics person than Sue necessarily. It's that Bob has managed mm. to speak the language of that person. And to me, I think that could be, I finished with that because that might be the most important thing. Because even as you're doing the politicking, forget about describing the results. It's all about the language that you use and the level at which you talk about it to convince people to do things with you that they do not understand and are not comfortable with and that could cost them their job mm. if they're wrong. Um, that that really takes a, a, a lot of work, effort, and trust. And you can't do that if you're if you're trying to build the trust by showing that you're super smart in this area and can mm. rattle off 200 metrics that, you know, supposedly tell a story. Interesting. Um, great point, Bill. And and if we also sort of ask our guest to share some of the books that they have read um, with our viewers and listeners. So do you have <clears throat> some books that that you like uh, for that you could that you could share with our listeners and viewers? You know, what's interesting. It sounds I just don't have much. I don't have time to read as many books as I used to anymore. And and as a guy who's written a couple books, I'm my own worst enemy to say it, right? But what I found I actually tend to like to do anymore is uh, I actually like to go out. I've got a, a, a feed set up where hmm. sites that have good blogs that I like, I tag them, and I look, you know, for articles every week. And I, I, I tend now to, I prefer to try and find, you know, every week 10 to 20 blog posts or articles that are relevant on, di on different related topics to get a feel for hmm. what's going on. Um, then to get a deep dive in. Now, that could be, again, a little biased because my role is to really mm. keep an eye on everything. Uh, to the extent that I had very specific mm. problems to solve, if I was set, you know, tasked with setting up a new you know, digital marketing and analytics system, I think I probably would then go buy a, you know, look for some good books on, on that topic. But I think today, uh, kind of like how algorithms are ubiquitous, a lot of information now, um, you know, I'd say if you find a person that you really like their writing, so for example, if you really like my blogs, you might very well like my books. It'd be a good bet. But, um, you know, you can test out, uh, a, a, both a, a website in terms of its focus and the individual writers on that site, you know, mm. pretty easily these days. And that's, that's actually my preferred method. I, I've got probably 20 or 30 sites I've tagged. And mm. every time someone sends me a link from a new one that I like, I'll, you know, I'll add it for a while and, and see if, if their feed pops up, uh, articles that are, uh, are, are relevant enough to keep it in the mix for me. Interesting. Um, thank you so much, Bill, on that. Uh, and so this is the last part of the least question for the for the session. So, if oh, and real um, quick, you know what I just realized? Make sure you send me uh, send me yours. Uh, what I'm thinking about, and I'm trying to think if I have your site actually linked as a feed, like where this this sure, uh, podcast sure. will be posted. 
make sure I have that because I'd love to check out some of these podcasts and I, I know I've come across one or two, but now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure I don't have this actually as part of my feed that I'll get an update. Okay. Um, uh, I'll make sure that. Uh, and then thank you so much on that, Bill. So uh, before we part ways, I, I want, um, if one thing uh, uh, listeners and viewers can take away from this conversation, what do you think would that one thing be uh, that, that you want viewers and listeners to take away? I, I think if you wrap all of this together, it's to realize that we have to step back as analytical professionals, whether, you know, again, data scientists, whether you're, uh, you know, you're doing the, uh, the clinical trial work, whatever the case mm -hmm. is. And we often talk to people about all the disruption that's happening in business. And, and then we look at ourselves as part of that disruption and rightfully so. Um, I think a lot of our conversation today involved how we're being disrupted and our own mm. job role and our own focuses are being disrupted. And I think the, the main takeaway for me would be that anyone who thinks that five, ten years from now, you can have success and high compensation doing exactly mm. what you're doing today as an analytics professional or data scientist mm. is going to be, you know, sadly mistaken. Things are changing way too fast. Your point between uh, AI uh, coming to be a, a much bigger role between the uh, the way the cloud is accelerating certain trends to the way that new data sources and problems are being solved. All of this um, that the, we've talked about the analytical tools that automate a lot of what we've spent a lot of time doing historically. All of this points to the need for us to examine our own roles and how we're being disrupted before we get disrupted and how we can ride that instead of fall victim. And uh, much like in business, there, there are businesses and there are people within business who see the disruption and adjust and succeed and those who go down under it. I think in the analytics world, we're already seeing, mm. you can already see people who, who are struggling to have an impact today because they haven't adjusted and, and, and picked up new skills and new perspectives with all this. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that one of the most important ones, especially for young people who pride themselves on their programming acumen today, I think that will be less and less of an impact moving mm. forward. I think the knowledge of what needs done is still going to have a lot of merit. Uh, back to my analogy of you'll be the conductor, the orchestrator, you'll be, right. you'll be, you know, that business liaison, but it, it, it will be, it'll be that skill to think that in that bigger picture, that's going to be the big differentiator. And that's always been part of the value prop, but I think it's going to be the substantial value prop within a few years outside of some of the niche people where you're developing the new AI algorithm that's never been done before. That's going to be hardcore coding, but that's a small percentage. And in a business environment, that just never happens. That's more of a research university. Um, or, a, or a research lab, uh, you know, niche within a big company. But on the business side, I think uh, you can take it to the bank that, that you better be thinking about what unique skills you have that will remain unique and valuable over the next five to 10 years. And today, start focusing on redefining your annual objectives and your training goals and your reading uh, on the weekends to reinforce those skills rather than uh, focusing on, you know, whatever's made you... Uh, you know, get to where you are today. I think that's that's a fabulous close, uh, Bill. I think thank you so much again for be, for being extremely generous with your time and and walking us through some of the insights uh, that we should learn as a community to understand how what's going on in the, in the world of analytics and and the future of data. Thank you so much. You're always welcome back on the podcast uh, to share your journey. Wish you nothing but success right. in, in your role in IA and and beyond. Um, thank you so much. All right. Thank you for having me. 
I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it. Then I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic on? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on a circle.